Action series of podcasts is proudly supported by Arc Maths. That's Arc with a C. Now, over the course of these nine episodes, you'll be hearing about cutting edge research and its application to the classroom. And that is exactly what Arc Maths is all about. The ArcMaths app makes use of research into retrieval, testing, spacing and interleaving to design a personalised practice programme for each of your students that stops them forgetting the things they once knew. It strengthens their recall of core math skills and knowledge and keeps students systematically practising previous topics so you can teach new ones. There's no teaching element to it, it's just designed to support your teaching through regular recapping. On top of this, there is a brilliant handwriting recognition tool that can even cope with my dodgy scribbles and you can annotate the pictures and write on the working out screen. Unsurprisingly, the app has been shortlisted for Educational App of the Year at the 2021 BET Awards. Teachers can have a go with the ArcMaths app for free if they get in contact and mention the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. It's currently available for iPads, but phone and other tablet versions will be available from September. So just drop them an email at hello at arceducation.co.uk or contact them via the website. And there's links to both of those things in the show notes. And remember, that's Arc with a C, not a K. So, welcome to season two of my Research in Action mini-series, where I interview researchers from Loughborough University's Centre for Mathematical Cognition about their chosen areas of interest, and crucially, the implications for teachers in the classroom. And above all, I try my very best not to come across completely out of my depth. Episode three features the wonderful Lara Alcock. Now, Lara completed a BSc and an MSc in mathematics and a PhD in mathematics education at the University of Warwick. She then spent four years as an assistant professor with a joint appointment in mathematics at the Graduate School of Education at the Rutgers University in the USA. She returned to the UK in 2005 and worked as a teaching fellow at Essex University before taking up her current post at Loughborough in 2007. Now, Lara and I discussed two of my favourite things, reading mathematical problems and the self-explanation effect. Now, I've spoken a fair bit about both these things over the last few years on the podcast, perhaps most notably with Michael Pershing in both of his appearances. But to be able to discuss these with someone who's researched them firsthand was fascinating. So how do experienced mathematicians read solutions differently to undergrads? And how can the latter group be supported to read the solutions more like the experts? And crucially, what are the implications for the classroom? I'll share my thoughts in the takeaways at the end. So without further ado, let's get cracking. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Laura, so we start the podcast as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Well, I don't have a favourite number as such, because for me, my answer to that is it depends what colour they're written in. Oh, you, you've intrigued me. Go on. <laughs> Go on. Um, so I am a colour graphene synesthete. 
which means that... Say that again, I say that again. Color grapheme synesthete. I believe that's the technical wow. name for it. Jeez. So I, um, for me, letters of the alphabet and digits have colors um, just sort of associated with them. So, for instance, the number one is white, the number two is yellow, the number five is a sort of minty green. Um, and I have so many questions already, Eli. Just very quickly, the, are these colours you've attached to them yourself? Uh, they... Yes, although not intentionally. Um, so, wow. so synesthesia, there's various different forms of synesthesia, although the one I have is apparently the most common. Um, and it gets, um, I can trace the colours that I have back to a lot of alphabet sets and like number sets of plastic numbers or right. things on the wall I had when I was a kid. Dominoes in particular, colour dominoes. So um, the colours sort of get get attached to them mentally and then they're sort of evoked when you see the, the, the written number, which if everything's written in black and white is totally unintrusive. So the only times I notice it are when something, when I, well, when I think of numbers myself, they have colours associated with yeah. them. And when I see numbers that are coloured in the world, they can make me kind of either a bit happy or a bit sad. So, <laughs> so when I was at... Um, I spent a few weeks in at Swinburne University in Melbourne one time and you went up an escalator in the building I was based in and there was a, like a seven foot tall golden yellow number two for floor two at the top of it. And this brought me so much happiness every time I saw it because it was the right kind of yellow for the number oh, two. Right. Um, whereas when things are coloured but they're the wrong colours, I find that slightly jarring. Jeez, um, so. I mean, I think we could do an entire episode on this. Um, let me just ask you what... I'm fascinated. I've never heard of this before. So if you... What happens when you've got like multi-digit numbers? So if, if you say, if you like something like 312, do yeah. you see like the 12 a certain color and the three? Yeah, all the, the digits have to... their own colors. If it's a really long number or word, they tend to kind of all mush together. Yes. But um, if it's just three digits, I sort of see the three digit colors, yeah. Ah, oh, and like, would you see 12 as a one and two, yeah. this, like two different colors? Yeah, it's digits, not, um, not like yes. numbers as a whole thing, yeah. Wow. And do some, I assume some letters and colours would have the, sorry, some letters and numbers would have the same colour, would they? Yeah. Sometimes they have different sort of tones of the same colour. But yeah, the numbers are all different because there's only 10 of those. But a lot of the letters yes. have, have similar-ish colours. Um, that is blown, it's blown my mind, this. <laughs> it's going to be one of those things where tonight I'll be still thinking about this and I'll be annoyed I haven't asked you something oh, okay. about it. I, so think... I, might, I might throw in another random question later on or something, <laughs> something comes to mind. There. Oh, see. final one. It doesn't give you any like superpower. This it doesn't help you remember numbers better than most people, does it? I don't know if it helps me remember better than most people, but it certainly helped me with early spelling and arithmetic. Um, yes. My understanding is that there's no particular association between um, this kind of synesthesia and these kinds of skills. But certainly for me, when you were looking at you know three plus two equals five, that to me looks like sort of purplish puce type color plus yellow equals minty green. Um, and so if there was a seven instead of the five, I would know immediately that was wrong because the color is wrong as well as the size and shape yes. of the number somehow. It just looks wrong on the page, even though it's not that color on the page. That is incredible. That is That might be the best answer we've ever I've done about 150 of these, and that might be the best answer we've ever had. We could have peaked too soon now, Laura. That's my only <laughs> concern. There. That's brilliant, that. And um, well, number two, then, what, what was your favorite topic in maths as a student? Um, yeah, I find this one hard to answer. I, I think that... What I've always liked about math since I was very small is pattern, really, mm. and logic. So, for instance, when I was um, in like nursery school, I, rem I remember my favorite thing to play with was octons. Do you remember octons? 
No, they were like these so. flat octagonal plastic things with slots in the side, so you could slot them together at right angles yes, to each other. Yes, But then you could make them into sort of 3D geometric shapes and, and slot them together in different ways. I loved those. And I liked tessellation and things like that. I did a lot of sort of logic puzzle things when I was a kid growing yeah. up. Those I really enjoyed. Um, a teacher gave me some um, cross-figure puzzles, a book of them once, uh, where every, it's like a crossword, except that every clue it says, so it says one across, will be seven times three across ah, and three yes, across will yes. be 15 times two down or something like that. Yeah, so yeah, then you have to work out the logic of how all those fit together. And it was that kind of thing and the way maths fit together that appealed to me. But when I got to university, I think I was definitely a pure maths person. Um, so I found applied maths, it's untidy and the equations mm. are long and they're often only mm. approximations <laughs> anyway. And I liked nice, tidy, pure maths. But I particularly liked subjects where I really felt I could almost see or feel what was going on. So I liked things where there were good geometric representations as well. So I particularly liked real analysis and topology um, because nice. they had the, the combination of the two. Like I could imagine a graph or an image or something that represented what was happening, but I could also, the way you expressed it algebraically or verbally and algebraically was like neat and tidy and you could follow the reasoning. So that combination appealed to me particularly. Got it. Fantastic. And final question for you, Laura. Um, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in maths education, research and so on? Well, this question made me think about coming back to the colours. So um, recently, as I think, you know, we um, our centre expanded dramatically thanks to mm. a big grant won by um, my colleagues, Matthew Ingalls and Camilla Gilmore. And consequently, we had many more staff and we had to have some new space. And I found myself in a meeting with a woman whose job it is to do colours for the university. And that made me think, I missed a trick there. Like, how on earth do you end up with that job? Um, but more seriously, what I like most is writing. Um, and I really like to travel and I like to write home about travel. And I think that I would like to scare myself up a retirement career as a um, travel writer. Or possibly yes. just a copy editor. I love improving writing, my own or other people's. Yeah. I really like the editing process. So I think probably one of those would be the thing that I would realistically do as a second career. That is good. I'm intrigued by this, this colour person. <laughs> So what, just for Loughborough, or was that a job like going around different universities? Well, it was, no, it was her job for Loughborough. So, of course, if you think about it in the modern world, so somebody has to design what's happening in all the buildings, and you don't want to look at it to look a horrible mishmash yeah, of random yeah, yeah. things. You want it to have a colour palette that looks fairly consistent, I suppose. Yes. And that also these days runs across um, websites and all sorts of other publicity of materials. So I think she was part of the team that does the design sort of aspects across the whole university. So nice. it does make sense when you think about it. Yeah. Um, but it just surprised me at the time that this was sort of her main role. That is nice. Fantastic. Okay, well, uh, we move on now, uh, Lara, if it's okay, to your career. So yeah. if you want to take us through where it all started for a year to where you are today. Well, I mean, where it all started was when I was that very little kid, you know, who really liked colours and patterns and things, I think. And I, I did, you know, maths books for fun. Um, when I was growing up, you know, extra things you could buy in WH Smiths. I liked doing those kinds of things. Um, I enjoyed it right the way through school. There were odd moments where I felt something didn't quite make sense and that floored me for a while. And then a mm. teacher helped me sort it out and so on. Um, when I was in secondary school, I happened to get an extremely good teacher, Michael um, George Sutcliffe, who was rather eccentric, but also very um, teaching, teaching in a sort of responsive mode. I mean, at the time I went through school, it may have been the same for you. We had these SMP books and booklets. So it was yeah, pretty much yes. self, not self-sequenced, but it was pretty much self-paced. Mm. So you would work through a little booklet. You would learn from the booklet, work through it, ask your teacher if you got stuck. Um, I think you even check your own answers. I can't remember. But anyway, a lot, of, a lot of that. So I was able to do that. And he also then gave me like random extra things to do. And he was very much a teacher of the um, sort of oh, work it out yourself. 
and yeah. I'll sort of help you think it through kind of variety. Um, and he very kindly, when I wanted to do further maths at A-level, but my school had quite a small sixth form and didn't offer it, um, said that he would just do it, that we would just nice. do it on the side. Um, so I randomly went into different, um, you know, I went to see him during his like tutorial group in the morning and asked yes. him random maths questions. One day I showed up and it happened to be the beginning of his upper sixth class when I was in the lower sixth. And he said, he said, oh, do stay or cock, you won't understand anything, but sit down anyway. And I sort of ended up doing the first year and the second year of A-level at the same time and then nice. did my A-level a year early. Right. Um, so I already had an A when I started interviewing for universities. And so that made it wow. a lot easier. I got yes, some very low yes. offers. Um, so I went to Warwick um, as an undergraduate. I'm sure I would have done an MMath had that been an option, but they didn't exist at that time. Um, so I did an undergraduate maths degree. I then went traveling for a year. Then I went back to Warwick intending to do a PhD in maths. So I did a master's year first. Um, and but during that year, I started teaching myself. So I um, Warwick at the time, I think still now had PhD students acting as supervisors to small groups of undergraduates, like four of us or so you meet once a week and you could ask questions about everything. And I did a lot of that and became very interested in teaching and how people mm. think about it. I'd done one undergraduate maths module on mathematics education as well and I started asking you know is it possible to do studies in this area I went to the maths education sorry math education as it was over there and happened to be just in the right place at the right time so a chap called Adrian Simpson who um, uh, subsequently became my PhD supervisor was interested in supervising a PhD on um, students learning of real analysis in lectures but then also in a new course that was starting up for the straight math students which was essentially a flipped classroom model so right. they'd have only one lecture a week and then they were in classes of 30 odd. Um, and so I began studying that and also did a lot of teaching on it during that time and consequently was invited to give a lecture course while I was still a postgraduate student, nice. which was very unusual. And, you know, I mean, it made my PhD take longer, but I've no regrets because it set me up so well for them mm -hmm. life as an academic in a way that lots of people have had no experience of that when they then start a job. Yes. Um, yeah, after I finished my PhD, eventually, <laughs> after that, I went to Rutgers University in New Jersey. It's the State University of New Jersey and spent four years there. I had a joint appointment in mathematics and in the Graduate School of Education. So I taught half in each, which was fantastic because it meant I could keep the higher level undergraduate mathematics going, the teaching of that. Yep. And then I came back to the UK and I spent two years at the University of Essex where I was a teaching fellow. So I didn't do any research during that time, but I did a lot of teaching. So I really did a lot of teaching in subjects, in some cases that I had really had to start from scratch myself. Mm. Um, so I learned a lot during that time. Yes. Um, and then the job came up at Loughborough um, and uh, then I applied for it as a lecturer as it was then and um, was very delighted to get the job. At the time, the Maths Education Centre really existed primarily as providing this mathematics learning support across the university. Um, but there'd been a decision that if this thing was going to have a life in the long term, it was going to have to become a research centre. So Barbara Yavorsky and I were both um, recruited at around the same time and the centre has grown progressively since then. Um, so, yeah, once again, I'm now in a situation where I teach undergraduate maths primarily, but also work with PhD students in maths education um, and, and teach them. I have taught education modules as well. Got it. Oof, I'll, I'll tell you what, the, the careers of the people I'm speaking to on this, they're blowing my mind. I've just spoke to Barbara, actually, yeah. just be before you. I think half an hour it took to get through Barbara's uh, varied <laughs> career and so on. It's, uh, yeah, I feel very inadequate on, on the podcast in general, but particularly in this research in action series. But that, that's fascinating, that, uh, Lara. You know, well, I think, um, can I just say, I think, um, hmm. I think a lot of people, especially junior um, researchers, 
sort of have this idea that they have to have this career plan and do everything in a certain order. Yeah. And I, that's really not what happened to me. It was much more opportunities, opportunistic yes, than that. Yes. Much more, what did I want to do at the time? Where would I like to live in the world? What opportunities yeah. came up that I looked for and took? And it's not like I designed my whole career. It was much more responsive, but in a way mm. that it's responding to things that I've been interested in. So I always want, you know, more junior people to feel like if you've got your eyes and ears open, you probably will find things that interest you. Yes. Yeah, that's an important message. I like that. That's good. That's good. Um, right, Laura. So it's this point in the podcast where I ask people to pick a favorite failure. So something in your career that hasn't gone according to plan and what you learned from the experience. I have a good story for you here. Okay, go. So um, some years ago, quite a lot of years ago now, I sort of invented a thing that we called e-proofs. And the purpose of this was, as you know, much undergraduate mathematics is a sort of definition theorem proof type mathematics. Um, and, you know, so I would be writing in my analysis class these 15 line proofs on a, a visualizer, as it was at the time, right. usually. And I would be explaining as I went along, writing down and the students would be writing and copying and listening and trying to take in everything I was saying, which is hard. Yes. Right. Because there's a lot of information. You really have to be following in real time, mm. thinking about links to what you already know. You're listening to what not just what the lecturer is writing, but other comments they might make about how everything yes. fits together. And they're typically not recorded. You know, I'm like five foot three. So if this was projected onto a board, I'd be pointing at things sometimes. Yes, and who yes. knows if they knew what I was pointing at, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so this, so I thought this was not great, but we could make these things that were like a sort of technological better resource of this. So just have the proof on a screen, but it had different screens that grayed out different parts of the proof to focus your attention in particular nice. places. Boxes and arrows showing this is what you're supposed to be saying and then clickable audio commentary. So you could listen to me explain how does this line relate to what we're trying to achieve or nice. why is this valid in terms of what we've already done and so on. Um, and everyone thought this was a great idea. Students really yeah. liked them. I made several. I was awarded a, a grant to generate some more of them and investigate further. Um, every time I've given presentations to mathematicians, you can see them thinking, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, that really is a problem for students. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, and just so to we, clarify, these, these, sorry, these are available to, so are students still, you're still doing what you would normally do in the lecture, are you? Or, and they've got these to take away or are um, they I doing these as it I did kind of a mix. So I made them and made them available when it was relevant in the course via the, the yeah. class sort of web page. Um, and then um, sometimes I use them in the class. So sometimes I just, instead of me talking live, I sort yeah. of went through them, played the various things. Yes, it introduces yes. a bit more variety, which yeah, you know course, generally keeps students awake. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, this seemed like a great idea. Mm. And then uh, we investigated how well they worked and it turned out they didn't. You're joking. So we compared learning from um, uh, oh, one of no. these with the same amount of time spent learning individually, harder to do in a lecture. So learning individually just from a student reading the proof. Um, right. And so they had a comprehension test afterwards, which we designed according to another colleague's framework. So, so they did the, they read for a certain amount of time, did the comprehension test. And then crucially, we had a sort of follow-up test a couple of weeks later to see how much they'd retained. And that yeah. was where the issues were. So there weren't any significant differences in terms of how well they did on this test, at, either at the time or at the end. But there was a more significant drop-off for the students who'd been using the e-proofs. So they forgot more. Really? Yeah. So it's like you'd, you'd sort of almost helped too much um yes, you know and interfered okay. with their own thinking processes i mean we followed this up with various research which i'll talk about later but um but yeah so at the time this was kind of heartbreaking for me because i yeah. really invested a lot in making these of things um, but with hindsight it was an extreme it turned out to be an extremely useful jumping off point 
for a lot of various other directions of research, which then were much more productive and taught me a lot about what students can already do and what they actually need support with in order to do better. That's a fascinating one. I like that one. Yeah, I hope we're going to dig a bit more into stuff like that. I'm, I'm fascinated even just when I was working on, on my first book, I, I was reading a bit of um, about learning from videos and how students almost go into it assuming it's going to be easier than work, you know doing some practice or working from a um, reading reading a proof because it's, it's seen as a bit more of a relaxing medium and how because they kind of go into it with this relaxed attitude and don't put the effort in they then yeah they have this drop off they forget things um they, they think they've learned it but, but it drops off so i'm fascinated by this Ooh, what a great story that is i like that one that's very very good very good but yeah okay i'd be annoyed i would be annoyed oh it was that. yeah at the time if, you, if you'd seen me at the time i was i was really quite upset for quite some time but now now i can speak about it with, you know quite happily that's good that's good fantastic right well um what do you want to talk about then laura how, how do you want to start this um what are, what i'm trying to get out of these conversations is the area of research that you're involved in what interests you um anything you found surprising and then the big one is for for classroom teachers listening what can they do with it what can they kind of take away and, and make use of so so tell us what you fancy talking about today well my general field is undergraduate mathematics education um, and that's sort of not a coincidence. I'm one of those classic people who ends up studying something that they found problematic at the time. You know, yes. I, I found it, the transition to university math very difficult. I ended up getting first class degree relatively easily. So it wasn't that I was incapable, but I found mm. the transition from this very um, sort of student centered individual experience with my teacher to being in big lectures. Um, I just didn't know what was going on with this new mm. kind of mathematics and the way you were supposed to interpret and learn it for a really long time. Um, as in the, the content or the, the yeah, way well, it was both, presented? really. I wasn't used to being in that environment. I didn't really know how to handle myself in that environment. I didn't yeah. know how to learn effectively from a lecture or from studying yes. afterwards. Um, and, and, you know, I didn't come from a school experience that was, um, you know, being taught procedures and then just learning to apply them. I had a much yeah. better and more flexible, this individualistic sort of, of problem-solving approach yeah. than that. But... That, that still didn't teach me anything about learning from um, a person explaining a bunch of technical, theoretical, theorem-proof-based mathematics. I just didn't yes. really know what to do with it and how to translate it into being able to answer the questions, which is a very, very common experience for undergraduate mm. students. Um, so, sorry, where was I saying that? So, yes, so that was my experience. I've been interested in that. So that's branched in a few directions in terms of students' reasoning about particular topics and reasoning in general, and also work with mathematicians about their processes. Um, so experts, so undergraduates sort of into experts is what I tend to study. Although what I want, would like to talk about is very relevant for school teachers, I think, especially those higher up the school um, yes. stages. Um, yeah, so should I say what I was going to yeah, yeah, please. So please I thought do. I might um, follow on from my failure story. um so what that prompted um me and my colleague matthew ingles who you've also talked to on this podcast Mm. um to to get into a strand of work on reading mathematics um so around that time i can't remember the chronology exactly but around that time we'd acquired an eye tracker which i know you also know somewhat about um i've never seen one of these but i love the idea of it well there's not much to see i mean shall i just explain yeah yeah so i mean these days they look it just looks like a normal computer screen so you can have a static one you can also have a thing that you stick on the bottom of a laptop which i've not used but um, all it looks like a normal computer screen but there's infrared cameras um and it records where you're looking 
So right. you have to calibrate it first by following a dot around the screen with your yeah. eyes, um, and then it records how you're looking. Um, and this is important and especially useful for reading research because it generates some useful and interesting measures. Because although when you're reading static text, you might have the impression that you're just reading from left to right in mm -hmm. a smooth motion, but in fact you're not. What happens is your eyes makes um, short fixations of around 150 to 500 milliseconds, depending on what type of thing you're reading. And then in between any two fixations, a very rapid saccade to a next position where oh. they can then take information in um, from the next position. So when you look at the output from this, if you just look at a sort of what they call a scan path, what you've got is a load of red dots and then lines between them. Yes. Um, so you can follow how a person was reading. Um, and you can get lots of different measures from this. So people set up areas of interest on the screen. You can tell how much time people spent in different areas of interest, how long their fixations were, where longer fixations on average indicate higher um, processing demand. So you can yes. tell how hard they were having to concentrate. Um, you can also, of course, see the order in which they read things. Um, so you can yeah. see people flipping backwards and forwards between lines of text and That's things like that. Interesting. Um, so we happen to have um, acquired this rather lovely toy um and um yeah so so one of the first things we, we did was we looked at undergraduates and mathematicians reading mathematics um and we followed uh, some previous research which had been about students not being very good at deciding whether an argument was valid or not even quite okay. short arguments in number theory so they might for instance say an argument was valid when actually it proved the converse of the claim Oh, for right, instance, okay. or they might be overly focused on, this is the, what people thought from interview studies, be overly focused on the algebra and not paying sufficient attention to sort of the logical structure of the argument, for instance, yes. as you, things that you might expect. Yeah. Um, so we had four of those short arguments and then two longer ones. Uh, and we asked undergraduates and mathematicians to come and sit and read them, decide whether they thought they were valid or not. Um, and then we looked at the eye tracking data as well. Nice. So, um, so I mean, the undergraduates, as we expected, they didn't make very good validity judgments. They were more or less at, at chance in as much as that's meaningful, which it turns out it's not really because the mathematicians didn't agree either. Right. Okay. Um, so when there was a clear error, like a converse error or a, or a very obvious missing step or something, the mathematicians all said, yeah, that's not valid. But the other proofs, especially a couple of the longer ones, um, they sometimes disagreed. You know, like half of them would say it's valid and half of them would say it's not. Uh, okay. And this is kind of a problem for a lot of undergraduate maths education research because people tend to say oh mathematicians think this or you know this proof yes. is valid this is not can students tell the difference so if that's not really as distinct as we think then that raises some yes. interesting questions yeah, yeah. so we pursued that but the the main work there was the um of interest really was the was the eye tracking differences and it did turn out to be the case that students were well, it's sort of the students were more focused on algebraic parts of the proofs, but really that was driven by the mathematicians spending more of their time looking at the words. Mm. So overall, they spent about the same amount of time, but mathematicians focused on the words. Interesting. Um, and in particular, another thing that's very noticeable was mathematicians made many more back and forth movements between lines of the proof. Right. So rather than trying to read forwards as if you were reading a novel. Yes. And that's particularly significant. Um, if you think about the content, because the content had to be such that the undergraduates could understand the material, at least in theory. So it yep. should have been pretty straightforward for the expert yeah. mathematicians. Yes. And yet they made more of these back and forth movements. Yes. So this really indicated that there was something special about mathematical reading that these experts were doing, that the students were doing less of. It's not that they weren't doing it, mm. but they were doing less of it than the mathematicians. Um, and that That's really indicated something about what students might 
not be doing that an expert might be doing. Yes. Mm. Flipping heck. Okay, you, you've hooked me in here, Laura. Tell me, <laughs> tell me more. Tell me more. Okay, so the next thing that we did after that, is this true? These things tend to branch in several directions, sure, you sure, know, so, so, but the sort of next major step was um, to look at um, what might help students read more effectively. And for this, we adapted some existing, um, this was with a PhD student, Mark Hodds, who did all of this work, really, um, the, what I'm just about to talk about, um, adapted some self-explanation training. I don't know if you've heard of that. I'm big into self-explanation here, Laura, but tell, it's one of my obsessions. But please t t tell us a bit. Tell us it from your perspective. Well, I'm all for it now wrong. as well. Um, <laughs> so this training that we adapted was really very simple. Um, so we produced a booklet. Well, it was really just on paper at the time or on a screen um, that explains what self-explanation is, which in our case, say, if you're reading proofs, is you're supposed to stop at each line of a proof and ask yourself, and explain it to yourself. So ask yourself, how does this fit with my existing knowledge, with the rest of the proof, with what we're trying to achieve in the proof? Ask yourself those questions and provide proper answers. So it teaches you to distinguish um, self-explanation from just monitoring or paraphrasing mm. so that you're not just mm. saying the same thing in slightly different words. You're making new links. And you're certainly uh. not just going like, yeah, yeah, okay, I get that. No, I don't understand yes. that. Right. Yes. So that you're actually trying to add content based on what you already That's know or what you've just seen. Um, and then it gave some practice. It's sort of a sample version of explanations for a very short proof that a student might give and then a, a practice version for the student to think about. So it's very simple. Um, whenever it's funny, sort of showing it to mathematicians that you can almost see them thinking it just says read properly. You know, like, yeah, okay, it doesn't really yes. say anything. Right. I mean, um, and so we but we really attempted this with students. And so the first thing Mark did was he had them come in um, and um, produce a yeah so the first study was looking at students um uh, whether they would do better on the basis of having read this training so um some of them came in and read well they all came in and read on a screen some of them read um so half of them had self-explanation training can I just check? Sorry, Laura, mm -hmm. this training did it involve just reading through the book there's no coach here no yeah, no, no, no intervention from a teacher or anything. Just, got it, got just it. reading it. I mean, these are undergraduates, right? So they're they're, they're competent to to do yes. that and take in the information. Um, so they didn't need any particular support in that. So they came in and they they read the training. Um, and some some in a control group just got a piece of reading on the history of mathematics. Um, and then they had to um, they were asked to read a proof, self explaining each line. So yeah. either if they read self-explanation training, it said use the training to help you. If not, it just said, yeah. please explain each line of the proof. And then they did okay. a comprehension test. So we had sort of two outcome measures, both the, the explanations they gave and then the comprehension test. Um, and, and both showed a difference. So the people who'd had the self-explanation training gave better quality explanations that were yeah. more about providing justifications, noticing links across different lines, thinking about what the overall goal was, and mm. less just sort of a yeah, monitoring type commentary. Yes, um, got it. And got then it. they also did better in the comprehension test, even allowing for the fact that they'd taken a bit more time. So yes. um, factoring that out. So so this looked promising. Um, mm. you, I mean, just, just on that, just in case we don't get a chance to talk yeah. more about self-explanation, it's... It, it, I, I'm relatively well, relatively new to this. I taught for twelve years without having heard of self-explanation. Like I'd, I'd casually drop it in every now and again without knowing it. Like what what do we do to get from line one to two and so on? But mm -hmm. it's only when you start to read 
literature on it, the research on it, you realize it's, it's quite profound, isn't it? In, in the kind of effect it can have on, on understanding and also retention. Is, is it something that surprises you as well? No, not really. But it's one of those things that it, it seems obvious with hindsight, but at the time yeah, I'd never it. really thought about it, I think. That's it. I yeah. mean, I guess, I, I think this is one of those things that if you do it, quite naturally, you don't think that other people might need telling they have to do it. Yes, that's it. That's it. You know, so so maybe I just had always done it. And of course, there are variations. You know, some of the students, I'm sure, came in just doing that naturally anyway. Yeah. Others, not yeah. so much. Um, and so it, the fact that this could make a difference, I mean, this is where it's the really... The, the pleasure in this after the e-proofs failure was the great thing because the e-proofs, I tell you what, they were a lot of work to make. Yeah. Whereas this thing is a short, they read it themselves. It's 15 minutes. It's totally generic. It doesn't require me to make lots of changes to the proofs that I already have or spend ages making these nice video graphics or whatever. It just requires the student to individually read this thing and then apply it. And then they can do better. Yes. And so it's not about creating lots of very complicated things. It's about creating one simple thing which then allows students to sort of mobilize skills they already have, but perhaps yes. are just not using very well. And that's, that's I mean, that's a real win in educational terms, right? I mean, on, oh, on every level. It's, <laughs> it is, it's the big win. And again, my understanding, I've only read it from a kind of secondary school perspective, is a lot of the research suggests that high achieving students are, will be the ones who'll do this naturally, but low achieving students are the ones who'll need this explicit prompting to do it and then start to get some of the gains from it. Mm-hmm. I was really interested though in something you were saying about kind of what's an effective self-explanation prompt? Because you often get this in education. I'm guilty of this. You read something and think, oh, fantastic, I can apply this. So almost like any self-explanation prompt is as good as any other. But you were saying that um, it's the ones that perhaps cause you to create either new connections or new insights. They're the most effective. Can you, can you just talk a little bit more about that? What, what is it that would make a good self-explanation prompt? Well, I'm not sure I want to answer that question as asked because um, our, our training was very generic. So it didn't have particular prompts. It, it wasn't attached to a particular proof. Sure. Um, it was generic training that you could then apply anywhere. And could you give us a bit of an insight into what some of that training is involved? I'm just interested because I think I've misinterpreted some some parts when I've been reading self-explanations. And, and often I've been, when you, when you were saying um, the students who weren't doing it properly were perhaps just monitoring what was going on from one line to another. I think a lot of my prompts have been more monitoring prompts whereas i think there's something a bit bit more in what you're saying with with regard to the yeah booklet. now you're making me wish i'd reread the exact phrasing before um speaking <laughs> to you. but um but it's it's yeah i mean so explain that you're not supposed to be just thinking to yourself oh yeah i get that or oh no i don't get yeah. that but actually yeah. um elaborating on what the content is so yes. explaining why is it that um a number is defined in this way in relation to what we're trying to achieve yes. why yes. is it that when you multiply these things together you get an even number why is it that when, you know, so that that was what the illustrations were, but there weren't yeah. any specific prompts of specific things you're supposed to ask yourself. It was more that you're supposed to ask yourself after each line, do I understand that? How do I think it relates to things that I've yes. previously seen? How does it relate to the rest of the proof? So these are very generic questions. Oh, so, cool, I mean, I think though. it's true. I think you can implement self-explanation in a bunch of different ways, including rather specific prompts in specific places in specific texts. Yes. But I, the work we did made me definitely want to err on the side of generic of saying I think so. because I, I, think I, so. I think also because of the other research which was showing that when you sort of interfered too much with people's natural thought processes they started relying on you instead of themselves and then maybe they're really not making connections with their personal existing knowledge and that's what you want 
That's interesting. Yes, because I, I had a conversation. There's a guy called Michael Pershin, who's a US teacher and blogger, and he's just written a book called Teaching Maths with Examples, which is fantastic, where he talks about research into worked examples and self-explanation prompts. And one of his big takeaways is the more specific the self-explanation prompt, the less likely it is to transfer across to, to related problems. So you can get kids who, you ask them, where did that 12 come from? Oh yeah, it came from there. But, and then next time they see a problem exactly like that, they're laughing. But a slight tweak on that problem, if that self-explanation problem has been specific, it doesn't transfer across, if, if that makes sense. So yeah. as I say, I'm just a little bit obsessed with this. So anybody who mentions self-explanation, I just pounce on them with a load of questions. So I, <laughs> I apologize there, Laura. <laughs> no, no, not uh, at all. Um, for that. Yeah, so, so yeah, keep, keep going with this one. So we've got, we've got the students who, who've read through this booklet um, and they've done better... Well, they've, they've done better full stop, right? They've, yeah. they've done better on both tests that you were doing, on the quality of the self-explanations and also on the comprehension test later on. Yeah. What, what came next? Well, so Mark then did another study that was about um, sort of process measures, so using the um, eye tracker again. Mm. So, um, so the sort of overall shape of the study was the same. People would get either the self-explanation training or not. But it's more complicated in that case because um, people's eye movements differ anyway. As you can imagine, there's quite a lot of individual differences there. Yes. So you need a pre and a post measure because you need to be able to say, you know, what was to sort of factor out how long were this person's fixations typically before they read this so that you yes. can tell whether there's actually been a change. Um, and then so because you need a pre and post measure, you need to get them to read two things. Uh, so we had a proof beforehand and a proof, proof afterwards. And then because proofs themselves might prompt different types of reading behavior, you need to counterbalance the design so that you've got some people reading one before and some people reading the other one afterwards. And then you've got everything you need to work out what's actually making a difference here if there is a difference. Oh, wow. Um, so and that turned out it, to, to be what you would expect. So so once again, so essentially the people who would had the self-explanation training, their reading behaviors became more like those of mathematicians. Um, so they were there. I think their fixations were a bit longer and certainly they did a lot more of the sort of back and forth movement as well as then doing better on a comprehension test. So they were sort of looking nice. better. They were reading better, even taking into account um, how much what their typical eye movements were before they started anyway. Yes. So, yes. And it was a good job we did counterbalance the proofs because it turned out one of the proofs just prompted a lot more back and forth movements overall. Interesting. But still. Um, the, the effect was the same no matter which ones the people had first. So, so it That's did actually, really you could see it happening in terms of eye tracker data. You could see how they improved. And then the final study we did on that was a, a more real life one where um, we did the same kind of thing, but in a lecture class and with a delay for the second sort of test of, of, of a couple of it was 20 days, I think, so nearly three weeks. Um, so everybody got all the materials eventually um, about general study skills and then self-explanation study skills just in a different order. And once again, the people who'd had the um, self-explanation training did better on proof comprehension tests, both immediately and about three weeks later. This time, the effect sizes were smaller, as you would expect in a, you know, when you've got when you've got someone in an individual room coming in and sitting down and the experimenter saying you should do this, you do it properly, right? When you're sitting yes, in a lecture yes, theatre yeah. with 200 people <laughs> yeah. in it, maybe you read it really carefully, maybe you don't. Yes. So you'd expect the effects to be less. And they were indeed less, but they were still significant and still, you know, worthy of note, I think. Oh, there's lots of things I want to ask you about this. Just one thing I, I thought of before when, when you were describing 
how the mathematicians read these proofs. And you said that they were they should have been relatively straightforward in terms of the content because they were pitched at undergraduate levels. Were the mathematicians aware that they were kind of flicking back and forward? Did, did they think they were just reading it fluently, like one line after another? No, I don't think they did. I mean, you look at one of the the sort of the scan paths, and it's it's crazy. I sometimes show it at open days. It's like there's it's, it looks like a some kind of insect has gone completely mad across the screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, especially when um, one of our proofs had. Um, there was a line in the middle that simply wasn't valid and wasn't justified based on anything else that was in the proof. And so the mathematicians in particular, when you look at theirs, there's a lot of activity around this line, backwards and forwards, yes. reading along it, backwards and forwards, reading along it, looking, yeah. you can tell, you can sort of see what they're doing, looking yeah. for um, looking for some kind of reason why maybe this is right, you know, maybe this is actually yes. okay before deciding that, no, it's not. Um, so, so they're definitely aware that they're doing that. But one interesting finding was that um, from various other studies, um, mathematicians believe that they, when faced with a proof or a sort of longer argument, that they will um, do a quick skim of it first right. um, in order to get the shape, overall shape of it or something, yeah. and then yeah, they'll yeah. read it in detail. Not true. <laughs> no evidence of that whatsoever. Um, simply didn't happen with the short proofs or the longer proofs. Um, they basically read them basically in order. Um, and people, when you talk about this to mathematicians, they all sort of want to insist, no, 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 they do do that. So we did another study where they came in and you know, they sent us research papers that they were going to read, but hadn't read yet. Yes, we didn't do it with those yes. either. Um, you know, you sort of chase it further and further. And then I, it was quite interesting, actually, what makes them think they have done that, right? Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. what makes them think they've done that. Maybe the beginnings of arguments or mathematical arguments are sufficiently clear about what they're going to do that they sort of feel uh, they've done it anyway. I, I don't really know. But, um, but yes, we've had... Um, People insisting that, no, they definitely do do that, but we've seen no evidence of it in the data. That's very interesting. <laughs> That's very interesting. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you was um, just on this. Mm. The, I get the sense that this notion of reading mathematics is something that certainly high school students, secondary school students, I don't suspect they get a lot of experience no. with. I, I suspect... Often, I mean, you, you, sometimes you get with geometrical proofs where every now and again that'll appear on a GCSE paper and students have to perhaps read through a proof, but very, very, very rarely. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I'm a little bit obsessed with worked example research, because trying to build in an opportunity for students to read a worked example from start to finish in their own time, as opposed to it kind of being rolled out on the board by the teacher saying, here's line one, here's line two. So I imagine that that must be quite a shock to, to students when they, because it doesn't really happen that much at A-level either, right? When they get to university, this, this notion of reading maths must be quite 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 a jolt to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that that's the thing that I would I would recommend changing and introducing um i think it's it's even i mean at university it's not obvious you should be reading either right so you go mm. to a lecture i mean pre-pandemic at least you go to a lecture and somebody stands at the front and presents some things and these days the presentation media vary quite a lot yes but um generally speaking somebody presents things and um then people go away and try and do their problem sheets and then wonder why they can't and on the yeah. whole that's because they probably haven't processed the material enough because they need mm. to be rereading it and working out what their understanding of it is first yes. and there's very little i think one of the big problems at um, undergraduate level is that there's there's cons not enough guidance on what people are expecting people to do when yes. they you know and so because they've not had any experience of that at a level or typically very little experience 
people don't really see uh, a lot of students don't really see reading as a way to learn mathematics yeah. whereas I think it's tremendously important and so in my own lectures I do a big variety of different kinds of things now with um, but one of the things I sometimes do is say here's a proof that's already printed for you um, spend five minutes see if you can explain it to the person next to you Yes. And if you can't explain it, that's fine. But then if you get stuck somewhere, tell them why you're stuck. You know, what is it you're not sure about? So that when I then say something, you've had a chance to do some reading and thinking, and then you can listen better to my explanation. But also you've had a chance to do some reading and thinking. Because yes. my view is that if, it doesn't need to be all the time, but if an activity is important, then it's important for a lecturer or a teacher to give some time mm. to it in class. Because students will think that what's happening in class is the important stuff. Um, yes. And so if it's important to me that my students learn to read, I need to convey that to them somehow. I need to convey to them that they should be thinking this way when they're reading. So they get the self-explanation training and then they also get practice in lectures. Um, and it doesn't have to be heavy touch, but just, you know, reading something for a couple of minutes and then explaining to the person next to you, this is my understanding of it, what's yours? I didn't understand this line. Do you get where yes, that comes from? Yes. Is, quite a, is an experience that a lot of people perhaps have not had much of, but they're very capable of engaging with. They just need some practice. Yeah, this this fascinating this. So again, if I just go back briefly to this conversation I had with Michael Pershing. Mm. So we, it's, it's really interesting. We both read the exact same research into worked examples, yeah. but both interpreted it completely different. <laughs> so so I I do the traditional. If I if I was teaching you how to add fractions together, then I would go through a worked example on the board and I do silent teacher first. So I'd go through it in silence so you can just kind of focus and watch. Then I'd narrate over the top asking you self-explanation prompts. So what did I do to get from line one to two? What mistake might somebody make? These kind of questions to hopefully get you not just kind of nodding, but kind of thinking hard about what's happening. And then you'd practice and so on. Whereas what Michael does, exact same research base, but he will print out the worked example first the student with no talking whatsoever, the students will read it. Then he will then show them the self-explanation prompts for them to then think of themselves. And then he will then come in as the teacher and say, uh, Emma, what, what, what did you think about that first line of work? And John, what did you think of this? And so on. So I've been now experimenting with a bit of both. So sometimes doing the rollout, sometimes doing, doing the reading. I'm interested from your perspective, having obviously done loads more research yourself, what dictates what you choose to do will it be if it's a completely novel concept you'll kind of take control and do the rollout approach or how do you make that decision Laura if that makes sense <laughs> I would love to give you a clear coherent <laughs> that's what I'm hoping for I've got my pen ready <laughs> but I don't have one my teaching like everybody else's I think is very intuitive when you get right yeah. down to it you know um so there are some things that I do rather deliberately but I do them deliberately now but more often than not the first time I've done something it's been a spur of the moment thing that I've just yeah. done it and I've seen that it's worked well in the room or it's felt good in the room and then I've thought afterwards about why that might have worked in yes, relation to what yes. I know and then I've done it again rather more deliberately with a variety of things but I don't have an algorithm I don't have a no. sort of I always do this or I always do that it's very much a sort of feeling based thing when you're in the in the teaching planning I sort of I guess a lot of it's very much like how do I think about this you know what do yeah. what thinking process do I want a person to go through and then apart from that I actually just do like to have some variety somebody yeah, once said to me that being unpredictable is a good thing I mean obviously there are limits to that <laughs> but um but being somewhat unpredictable so that students can't know from one second to the next what you're going to necessarily yes. do next yes. and so that there's a lot of variety and things that perk you up and make you do something different in the room at the time helps to keep the sort of momentum going 
in yes, a lecture class with yes, a big class. Yeah, and yeah. so you know, I, I honestly can't answer that in a sort of defined, I do it this way for this type of thing and this way for this type of thing. Um, yeah, I don't have a good answer to that. But I do think variety is important and getting hitting all the skills one way or another is important, but I don't have a straightforward answer. Sorry no, no, that, that's that's fine. But I'll t- I'll t- I will, what I'll do instead then, I'll twist it around. I'll tell you my current thinking and you tell me if any of this kind of either chimes with you and what, what you've experienced and so on. So if I was teaching you something brand new in inverted commas, obviously you've got prior, prior experience of, of things from previous years, but let's say you've never been taught formally how to add fractions together, let's say, for example. And I was doing a worked example. I think I'd do it the so-called traditional way first. So I could kind of control the focus, maybe control the cognitive load and so on. So we'd have one line of work in, we'd focus on that, we'd talk about that and so on. But then the second example where I may tweak things, let's say I involve a mixed number fraction or more complicated denominators. That's where I like the idea of giving you a ready done worked example to to read through yourself in your own pace and and answer the self-explanation prompts. That's how I'm currently balancing the two. First example, roll it out. Second example, that's a kind of extension of it, reading through. I I don't know. What do you reckon, Laura? Good or bad one? I'm not going to be drawn on that. I know, I'm only joking. It's not boring, so I don't do the same thing every time. Kind of. Yeah, true, true. Although I think there is something to be said sometimes for routine and things like that so that people do feel confident and secure in the environment. You don't want them feeling like it's chaotic and like that they're they're not safe. People need to feel safe in the environment in order to take risks in the maths i think so i think there's some something but i mean what you're asking is an empirical question about whether that's better or worse than anything else so that would require being studied i mean i think in my context because i teach undergraduate maths it's different anyway i'm really not teaching people procedures so there's not the same there's well at least in what i'm teaching there's not really the same i can show you how to do one and then you can think about how to do a harder one yeah it doesn't quite it's and there are some analogies to that but it's not that direct i think so i I think i have comparatively little experience of teaching the kind of thing that you're talking about so so i'm still not going to be drawn (laughs) (laughs) well let let me ask you the other question about this and again feel free to give the same response (laughs) the other thing i'm the other thing i'm fascinated on is is the role of mistakes the importance of of being able to explain and articulate why something's not not quite right now i assume that that must play a role in in the kind of examples or reading of mathematics that your students are doing well where where does that come into play and again the, the reason i'm asking this is I'm always cautious. I know my kids need to be able to explain why something's not right, but I also want them to know what is right first to get the most out of explaining what's not. I don't want to confuse them, if that makes sense. Any thoughts on that? It does make sense. I mean, again, I implement it a different way because of the content. So I ask a lot of true-false questions. So there's um, like 10 every week in a systematic way where the students have to say, is this true or false? So they might be general statements or specific applications of something to a particular number or set or sequence or whatever. Um, And they have to say true or false. And if the thing is false, they have to give a counterexample or a brief reason. Nice. If it's true, you don't have to do anything because, I mean, a proof might take 10 lines. You can't do that in, in short right. order, but you perhaps can produce a counterexample in short order. Yes, yes. Um, and so there's a lot of that type of question that I ask, which mm. is more about you've got to look at something and you have to make a decision. 
Yes. You know, yes. where you're not sort of just assuming that something's right or necessarily looking for the wrong thing, but working out what you think is right there. And I usually do it where students do them on their own for like, say, seven minutes or so, 10 questions, and then they can talk to the person next to them for three minutes or so. And then they can look out, look in their notes to check things. And then I go through the answers and I get them all to shout out true or false. You know? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And so you can get a sort of rough reading of the room. If it's if everyone agrees, it's probably OK. If there's a lot of disagreement, that's when it gets interesting. Right. Because yes. if I can clearly hear both answers that's great because it means i can yeah, say whatever you think a large number of people in this room clearly disagree with you yeah do you want to change your mind yes yes and that's when people get really involved mm. because they've now got yeah these are all intelligent people in this room right so they're, they're not idiots so yeah, yeah, how yeah. sure are you that your first answer yes. is right and that's when people often get particularly involved in that kind of thing and i also set this up in other small ways you know um um so if something implies if a implies b but not vice versa for instance mm, or, or it might mm. not be i sometimes ask which which one of these implies which other or is it both and then get them to vote you know which is the best which is right about yes, these things and yes. then go through the same kind of process of having some sort of vote and then rethinking and having another vote and so on um and this is a way to get everybody involved in thinking without them having to do anything complicated makes sense. um so i guess that's similar to what you're talking about i yes. love doing that I, I have this whole collection in my course of like questions that I know will split the class 50 50 yeah, it's great yeah, yeah, because yeah. it really makes them realize that things that look simple are sometimes much less obvious than you think yeah and also the importance of being able to not just know the right answer but explain why and yeah. communicate and convince and so on yeah, oh, that's good absolutely. I like that I like that, yeah. I like that. Um, so if we start talking then about kind of practical applications, if, if we've got classroom teachers listening here, how can they make the most out of out of this research, do you think, Laura? What, what would you be saying to, to teachers? Well, I think there's, I mean, there's a simple thing of including some sort of reading tasks, short ones in your class on a regular basis. I think that can only help. I'm sure it must just help everybody. I'm not, I mean, it feels like it should. You know, yeah. certainly for people who are going on to study mathematics at higher levels, it should help, right? Because you're going to have to become increasingly independent. You're not going to understand everything your lecturer says. You're going to need to look for alternative explanations. How how do you do that effectively? Hmm. So I think especially for people coming through, if I you know was suggesting to someone teaching A levels, then certainly I would suggest that you know every now and then as a teacher, stop talking, and just give people a chance to read something and explain for themselves what it yes. means before you weigh in. I think that that builds skills that might not be the obvious ones. Um, and I, I think I would definitely advise that. Um, and regarding, I mean, the thing is with self-explanation, as you've pointed out, there are so many different ways in which that can be implemented. Yes. I don't know enough to know if there's a major differences between one implementation and another. I'd be a yeah. bit surprised if there was, because yeah. the, the, the point really is to do, is to make links improve the links within your own knowledge so that things are yes. more accurately recorded and things are more easily recalled and yes if it achieves that in a slightly different way i don't care um yeah, yeah. but it may be that there are some differences but i would beyond this sort of action of doing that rather than relying on the explanations coming from outside i don't know that i would have particular recommendations beyond that i think i think that what both those things amount to with people who are competent in the maths is just trust them Perhaps more mm. than you might do otherwise. Mm. Yes. I know that I've had <laughs> some colleagues in maths can be a bit nervous about doing things in the room where students are talking to each other about the math because what if they say the wrong thing? Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. and it's yeah. almost like they think that, that if anyone says anything wrong, that's kind of a terrible thing. Whereas, but it completely misses the point that you might say everything right. They might understand it all completely wrongly, yeah, you know? Yeah, that, that this very is true. That Just because you've said it correctly, that doesn't mean it's going in. 
yeah, for most of yeah, the people yeah, in the yeah, room. Yeah. Um, and it is, I believe the evidence leans in the direction of if you give people a chance to talk and then talk again, they will get more right, not more wrong. Yes, yes. Um, and so I think what the, our research taught me in that sort of area was that students can do more than they typically do do. And it might be that they need a really quite light touch guidance in order to be able to use their skills more effectively. I find this very cheering because so much education research is about things that don't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> um, you know, and things that um, things where you think um, or it's very, very complicated to implement or somehow very resource intensive or, you know, things that are just not very realistic for yes. an ordinary lecturer or teacher in an ordinary classroom to, to decide they're going to do one day. Whereas some of these things are very easy to decide you're going to do one day. Yes. Um, which I, that's cheering to me. Makes me feel that is, it's cheering to me as well. Yeah. It's, and it's also cheering, as I say, to be able to discuss self-explanation. <laughs> if, if I go more than a couple of weeks without talking about that to anybody, I get a bit twitchy. So that's, that's always nice. And I, I like this idea. It almost feels like the Holy Grail to me, Laura, these, these generic self-explanation mm-hmm. problems, because they take so much time to, to write these flipping individual ones. And again, I don't know whether I'm doing the right thing, whereas to find some generic ones that, that help the way, I, the way I see it, help people think like mathematicians, help you know students think like mathematicians think, it just would be so valuable. So yeah, I'm gonna gonna need to do a bit more thinking on that. That's, that's, I mean, that's really, nice. all I just said, explain it to yourself. It didn't say very much beyond that. Yeah, I just I just wonder whether the younger kids are going to need yeah, well, some like, something so more. They, yeah, yeah, they might need more sort of almost um, examples or guidance or something. I think of so. What kinds think, of things you might ask yourself if you're I looking at, so. at this kind of thing? That yeah, I can well it's how you keep that. it generic. Yeah, I'm gonna. That's that's my that's my homework for myself from this. I'll be pondering that. That's good. And um, was there anything else about your area of research, um, Laura, that you wanted to share that you think is important that with uh, that listeners know about? Oh gosh, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> I mean, there's you know there's a there's a lot that's been done in undergraduate maths education. That I think that's of interest, but the the it's an interesting field in that the, the Methods have often been interview based, which I mean, I've done that myself and it's fascinating sitting down to do research interviews. I mean, it's a bit like you doing this, I guess, in that um, I'm naturally a talker. um, And although less so when I'm teaching because of the experience I have with my teacher. But um, but to to, you really have to shut up in a research interview and listen properly. And that taught me an enormous amount about students thinking and the errors in their thinking. And so and also in research more broadly, there's there's quite a lot of things that we know about typical misconceptions, you know, things that people get confused about. There's quite a lot of those. Um, I did some interesting research recently with some colleagues um, where we applied social network analysis in um, to look at how students interact with each other outside of class. I mean, I really think there's a lot. We know we do a lot of stuff about what happens in class. People design mm. interventions and then they evaluate them or they ask students about particular concepts and get them thinking about that. But what do they do in the like half of the week that they're yes. supposed to be studying if you're an undergraduate that we are not there for? Right. Um, and, you know, I think we don't know very much about that. No, um, we don't know very much about whether how they use their time, whether they use it effectively, what kinds of things might help them to use that more effectively when they've got the choice. Um, that's less relevant at school level, I suppose. No, but still, in, still interesting. Yeah. So, have you you've started that research? Yeah, you? well, we did. I know it was, it was, um, the study is finished and published now. It oh, was wow. um, it was fascinating. We didn't find any like massive major results about everyone should do this, yeah. um, but it was interesting to see who worked with whom in that sort of um, social network things, and the, just the sheer variety in the number of hours students claim to spend studying independently, yes. in the number of people they claim to spend time studying with. And the extent of that and the proportion of the time they spend studying independently that they spend with other people. 
And I think just even that information on its own, haven't really done anything with that. But that's something that I feel like undergraduates should have access to so that they get a sense that what they're doing and their immediate friends are doing might not be typical. Yes. And that there are other ways to do this and that they might all be okay. I think that that would be quite useful to some people. Partly, but some people don't do anywhere near enough studying, right? They might, it might be good to know that most of the class are doing more than them. Some people probably overwork and make themselves very tired beyond the point where it's really helping with their learning. And they might benefit from seeing that, you know, that's really not typical. And there are people doing just fine on less than that. Um, that is interesting. That's the sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, that right? sounds fascinating. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, anything else, Laura? I, I could listen to this uh, literally all day. <laughs> so uh, anything else from, from your research that you want to you touch upon? Um, I, I guess one of the things that I've learned is that, that one of the things that's now very clear to me, actually, is that when I went to university and I had this big sort of crisis of confidence because I didn't understand anything and didn't know what to do, yep. no one was talking to me about that. Yeah. Right. No, no, I don't believe I had a really good personal tutor, actually. And we went and did some math with him. But there was no conversation about what is everybody doing? Like, what are you expected Mm. to do in this environment? How are you expected Mm. to learn from it? Um, And so, um, I mean, one of the things I don't so I write books, too. So (laughs) so one of the things that I eventually did was um, I thought I'd been thinking for a really long time, actually, you know, we actually know quite a bit about what's difficult about this transition and understanding definitions and proofs and what they mean and the structures. And and nobody had written it down in a way the students could understand, Mm. which seemed like a real omission because these are smart people, right? People who go to university to do a maths degree, they're very, they're bright, right? They can understand some of this stuff. So I I guess I feel satisfied that I've finally, (laughs) it took me a long time, but finally got around to writing that down as a sort of self-help guide for undergraduates and have since done similar ones for more specific subjects just to try and say this is you know the difficulties you're having are typical normal things here are some things that it would it will help you to know these things but your lecturers probably won't say it yeah 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 you know like this is the kind of thing you should be looking out for when they explain things in this way what they're expecting you to do is this um how much time should you spend doing these things what typically confuses people about these subjects and why? Um, and here's a long, drawn-out explanation of some complicated logical thing that will go past too fast in your lectures, probably, but you can read it mm. more slowly here. Mm. Um, and so I think that my view tends to be that there's a lot of people who are extremely capable, but who, like I did, have this massive sort of confidence crisis early on. And if they can yeah. get a bit of a leg up to get them started in the yes. thinking the way they're supposed to, they'll be absolutely fine. Yeah, Because most people do recover from that. Um, and so I think that's quite important to, to communicate with students somewhat directly. Again, this would depend on di- different ages, but somewhat directly, I think, communicating with them about what your expectations are and what they might feel like. You know, I always yes. start, start my I wrote this in my analysis book, How to Think About Analysis. But I, I always like two weeks in, I kind of draw this graph that has like happy, sad on the Y axis and then number of weeks on the, um, on yeah. the X axis. And it's, you start, people start off quite happy and they tank. Right. So about week four, maybe week five, if you're lucky, that's yeah. as far as you get. They are utterly miserable. Like the entire class is completely miserable. Yes. Right? They all yeah. know that this is really hard. It's not going to get any easier. A lot of them hate me. You know, that <laughs> there's a real palpable atmosphere of misery yeah, in the room. Yeah. But that if you just wait two weeks later, everyone will feel a bit better. It's like you've yes. sort of got past the shock <laughs> and you've yes, started to get yes. to grips with what's going on here. And you're starting to make progress and feel like maybe you're not a total failure. Yeah, and then you can keep going. But and I think if the person at the front of the room knows that 
and tells you that's probably what's going to happen. When it does happen, you don't feel like you're a disaster and you don't feel like you're failing. You feel like this is normal. Whereas it's easy, even in a room of 200 people, if you don't get much chance to talk to your neighbors, it's easy to feel like it's you. Like maybe you're not cut out for this. Maybe you can't do it. Maybe you've topped out. You know, you were good at A-level, but you're rubbish at this level. And then you lose your confidence and then you can't engage very effectively. And that's a terrible waste. So I I like people to know that's typically what happens. It's going to be fine. Just hang in there, you know. That's Um, And I think, again, I think you can do that at at school level as well. mm -hmm. I I used to, um, I used to teach this thing called AQA, level two certificate in further maths. And it's what your bright year 11s would do alongside their GCSE in their final year to kind of bridge the gap between GCSE and A-level. It's a brilliant course, but it's flipping hard, like a real shock for for some of these these kids. First time they'd found maths hard, you know, some of these kids. And you knew that some of the things you'd be teaching the kids, like they'd be doing CERDs, but they'd be doing extreme CERDs. There'd be all sorts going on with these CERDs. And the kids were like, what the hell's this? And I found like... Firstly, the first year I taught it, I taught it terribly because I couldn't predict the pain points where they were going to be. But second year, I taught it a bit better because I could warn the kids that this is going to be a stinker. This lesson is going to be horrendous, but next week it'll make more sense and so on. But by the third time round, I was teaching it better, but also I could bring in a kid from sixth form who I taught this to, who could come in and say, look, just tell them, because they won't believe me, just tell them that this is bad, but it's going to get better. And I think sometimes finding that other person who's also had that experience but got through it, that that can be useful as well can't it that makes sense yeah absolutely i think that um i i mean teachers i think must have to deal with this more on a day-to-day basis school teachers i, I think that university level lecturers um you don't really have to deal with the emotions of the people right? mm. when because there are 100 200 people in the room yes they're yes, sort of not really yes. individuals anymore I mean, they yes. are. I always feel like I get to know the class as a class. It sort of has yeah, a personality, yeah, yeah. the class. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you don't really have to to engage with that sort of experience. Mm. Um, and of course, a lot of people don't. And I think yes. would not feel comfortable to. And I don't. I try not to overdo it because it can come across as patronising. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. probably the most effective one minute of teaching I ever did was this is back when I was teaching at Warwick, and it was I don't know week six or seven, one of the weeks when people have a lot of tests. And I, I, it was, everyone was, you could feel it. They were so miserable. Um, (laughs) And 200 people's worth of misery is a lot of misery, right? It was awful. And I soldiered on right away for about 10 minutes. And then I just stopped. I was like, you all seemed really miserable. Are you all really miserable today? And everyone sort of was like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I said, oh, go on then. Just take it one minute. Like tell the person next to you how much you hate math and you wish you'd done something easier. And you know, you can't stand this subject, blah, whatever. And the room came alive, you know, I mean, the noise level was extraordinary. And then one minute later, like I timed it, I watched it go round on the clock, which the second hand go round the clock. Everyone was up in their seats, perfectly back to normal. It was like pricking a balloon. It was like the sort of somehow you'd released this negative energy. And I would never do that in a contrived or planned way. But being a little bit responsive to how people might be feeling and allowing them to express that can be terribly powerful, I think. That's interesting. I like that. I'm going to use that one. That's very, very good. That's good. Uh, right. Well, are we okay to move on to reflections now? Yeah, Is that okay? Is that okay yeah. with you? So um, first up, what's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? Um, can I tell you one that's not really a mind change, but sort of an evolution in thinking? Oh, yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah. go for it. I, more than, when I, I think when I first started teaching, I've always put a lot of work into my teaching. Um, not for, um, you know, selfless moral reasons, but just because I really like it, right? I, I really like the problem of like, how do I want people to think about this? What's my explanation going to be like? What am I going to ask yeah. them to do and think about? I find that fascinating. 
and, you know, trying to predict where are the sticking points going to be? What are they going to mm. get confused about based on their previous knowledge? I really enjoy that. So I put a lot of work into it. And of course, certainly when you're at university, not all students respond to that terribly well. Yes. You know, some of them don't show up for lectures. They come in late. Yeah, they, yeah. They're just not terribly respectful. And I think I took that. And then they don't do well, some of them. And I think I taught that a bit personally to start yes. with and felt a little bit hurt by that and felt like I was putting all this work in and they weren't really learning from it and so on. Not in, not badly, but I think a bit. And I'm totally over that now. <laughs> because, you know, of course, you think about it properly. These, these are people. They have lives. You know, they've just had this massive yeah. change in their life. They've got loads of other stuff going on. I'm like one among 10 lecturers. It's not like, yes. you know, I'm not going to be everybody's favorite person. I'm not going to be... Um, someone who they feel they can do exactly what I want all the time they just got so yes. many demands on their attention and so now I don't take it personally at all um you know I I there are things that I do to make sure the room is polite and um that everyone's able to sure, engage sure. rather deliberately but <clears throat> I don't take it personally that a load of people fail my course every year for instance yeah that's good I, I don't feel like that's a personal failure of mine I I'm much yes. better at distinguishing between what my job is in this situation so I can I will do this and I will set you up a good learning opportunity. Mm, mm. You take it, maybe you don't. Yes. Um, and then I won't be personally offended if you decide not to. So uh, that's something that's changed for me, I think. That's nice. I really like that. I've um, Again, I'll be interested, school teachers listen to this, I'll be interested in their take because I've, I've been lucky to visit, I don't know, 50, 60 schools over the last few years. There's some quite toxic environments where, it is the responsibility solely on the teacher. If the kids are failing, the question is, right, what are you going to do about yeah. you, the teacher? What are you going to do about it? Right. You've got to stay after school for after school classes. You've got to set this up. You've got to provide different types of work and so on. And it's, it's at some point you've got to draw the line and say, look, I've literally done all I can here. And now it's, it's down to you. But again, it's, it, it's, it's, it's difficult isn't it? when they're under 16 or whatever, it's, you almost feel you've kind of got a bit more responsibility as the adult to try and do maybe a little bit more to keep them on. Whereas, yeah, certainly at A-level, I, I certainly try and make that decision. I say, look, I have literally done all I can here. And if you can't be bothered with this, there's not much more I can do about it. But certainly in my first five or six years of teaching, I took everything far too personally. Every child who got something wrong was my fault. Every kid who didn't get an A-star was my fault. And it's, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to break away from that mindset, haven't you? Because it'll, it'll kill you in the end. It's, yeah, absolutely. Nobody can live up to that. So you're setting yourself up yeah. for failure. Exactly, exactly. Very wise words. I like that one. Um, so final uh, question for me. What areas do you think are most overlooked in mathematical education research, Lara? Well, I think the one... Okay, so um, obviously my research is right at one end of the spectrum um, in terms of the what level people are at learning. So it's not like I'm expert enough to say what, sure. what might be the case for much younger kids. Um, but I think for the older ones, it's probably what I just said. It's like, what are they doing on their own time? Mm. Like, what are they? Maybe, maybe less so for students who've got quite defined homework at any given time. But I do think that that, that question is one that's not really been looked at terribly much in, yes. the, in, in comparison with the bits that the teachers or lecturers, in my case, have control of. So I do think that there's perhaps some interesting work to be done there to understand better what that is and understand how to guide people to be more effective not to work more i'm definitely yes, someone who is yes. not for i want i want people to be able to work effectively so that they can enjoy the rest of their lives as well yeah yeah um but so that what can help them feel empowered what can help them feel like they are making 
progress and what can help them learn to effectively evaluate whether they are in fact making progress or not because as we were saying earlier you know things that feel like they are helpful might in fact not be very helpful that's interesting Uh, i remember dylan william now this i'm going to say a word that i always get wrong so you have to help me out on this one laura right it's the name you call like music teachers when they come into a school just for like and teach 10 minute guitar lesson it's like peripatetic or something no that's right that's how i would say it peripatetic (laughs) Pathetic. I'll go with that one. Um, so Dylan William, he once made a point a few, many years ago now that I thought was really impressive. And he said that um, classroom teachers should look to peripatetic teachers because the, the notion I've had for many years is that all the learning happens in the lesson. But of course, in the lesson, you know, best case, you teach the kids four or five times a week and, you know, less at university or whatever, less at A-level potentially. Whereas the peripatetic teachers, they'll come in for 10 minutes a week and the learning isn't happening in those 10 minutes. It's how they set the kids up for what they're doing in the rest of the week when they're practicing independently. And I just thought that was a really interesting point because I never give that any thought. Well, I I never used to give it any thought anyway. It was always, right, the big stuff happens in my lesson. You just go away and then come back again tomorrow and then we'll do some more learning. But it's such a small proportion of your time that you're with your teacher. And if the kids aren't empowered to know what it means to study effectively, we're missing a big trick there, aren't we, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that puts it a sort of, that's a very good, ex- almost extreme case argument for what I was wanting yeah. to say, that that sort of, it's not what, I mean, I definitely think about that in lectures. It's not what I'm doing in the lectures that's important. Yes, that's right? it, I mean, that is important it. in terms of structuring yeah. what's happening. But for any individual person learning, it's what they're doing in the lectures that's important, yes. or outside of lectures, or indeed anywhere else. Like, what is it that they are doing? It's all in their brains. I've already got my exactly. degree, right? I mean, it's, exactly. it's like what's happening for them that's the important thing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Final bonus one, Alara, just yeah. before I um, ask you for your big three, if that's okay. Just to circle back to something we were speaking um, right at the start about, because I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Just this notion of um, talking about your, your favorite failure and how one of the reasons perhaps your students were not learning as much from the brilliant uh, e-reader thing that you designed and so on was perhaps that, well, two two things I think you said. One, that perhaps they were not doing enough thinking for themselves because you were kind of guiding them through it. And and also perhaps that they, directly related to this, they weren't perhaps putting in as much kind of kind of cognitive effort themselves, as much, much thought them, themselves. And I mentioned briefly that I'm concerned with this, with, with students kind of watching videos on YouTube, oh, thinking it's a kind of bit of an easier medium and so on. And I also, I see a lot of this when I see kind of maths apps designed. And the idea is you do maths on the go, like you fire up your phone, you're on the bus, you're watching telly, do a bit of maths. And I, I'm always concerned by that because I think, again, your focus is elsewhere. And I think you learn something when you just kind of think a bit more intensely about it. Just any final thoughts on that about kind of, I guess the role of attention and focus uh, and having to, like, sometimes having to struggle through something to, to fully understand it. I, I don't know if those muddled thoughts kind of mean anything at all, Lara. Yeah, they do. I think that different media lend themselves to different things. So I wouldn't yeah. write off the idea of doing something on the bus for a few minutes. Yes. Lots of very short things can be very valuable. Certainly, I mean, you know, if I were listening to listening to previous ones of your podcasts, I'm walking around the kitchen, I'm like yeah, tidying yeah, up, yeah. you know, but yes. I'm listening and I'm learning. Yes. Um, and so it's not, I mean, math is quite a visual medium a lot of the time, but I don't think mm. all of it necessarily has to be. Um, my big concern about um, YouTube videos and similar for undergraduates is not, um, is not the obvious one. It's not that quality might not be great, because I think people are mostly savvy enough to know that quality might not be great. Yeah, yeah. It's that there's just so much of it. So yes. anyone who is seeking resources has got an enormous meta problem. How do you yeah. find the stuff? 
yes. that's gonna and you could easily lose an hour down a rabbit hole trying to find the perfect explanation yeah. of yeah. this proof that you've been trying to read whereas actually if you had just sat down and really <laughs> tried yourself and maybe asked the person in the flat next door you probably yeah. could have sorted it out in 20 minutes yeah so so the idea there's the i think there's something about video media that sort of can promote the idea that there is sort of a perfect explanation out there and your job is to find it rather than that your job is sort of to make it for yourself that's that's what worries me about those kinds of things that's very interesting i like that fantastic right so over to you laura for your big three what three websites blog posts books or whatever you want would you recommend our listeners check out Uh, well i'm on the show i'm a books person myself okay perfect Um, and the books that have had um, most, that I've found most useful, the ones that I felt like I wanted to mention are not ones that are particularly about maths or even education, but things that in my career have been useful and they're sort oh, of a bit related to things about teaching. So the first one is um, Joseph Williams' book, which is called Style, 10 Lessons in Clarity and Grace. Okay, or at least my right, edition like is. Um, there's been multiple editions of this thing. I think they've got slightly different titles. Um, I love to write but I used to be very bad at it. Um, and I, re- I discovered like three quarters of the way through my PhD that I couldn't write, having not had any experience. <laughs> right. You know, I'd only done science A-levels and so on. And this was a bit of a shock because I, I thought you did the research and then you would just write it up, right? Yeah, and this would yeah, be easy. Yeah. And it really, really wasn't. <laughs> um, and so I really put some work into this after I'd finished my PhD. And this, if I could only keep one book that was work-related, that is the one I would keep. Wow. It's fabulous. It, it, it Basically, it shows you the early sections, show you, a bad sentence and you read this and you're like yeah that's a bad sentence it's really hard to read and then it shows you a, a good version of the same sentence and you're like yeah that's much better and then it explains exactly what's wrong with the bad one oh, and exactly brilliant. how to turn it into the good one and then does the same kinds of things at sentence and then paragraph levels and then the later sections are really about style and shape in writing and i still go back oh, I've, I've had it for 20 years and i go back to it regularly and learn new things every time so for oh, anyone who does fantastic. any kind of writing um, I would really recommend it. It's, it's about editing, not about writing, but it's about starting with something that you've written that you're pretty happy with the content of. How do you yes. make it smooth, you know, and concise yeah. and sleek and make the main ideas really stand out so the reader has a smooth reading experience and can just focus on the content? That's that sounds brilliant. Serious recommendation. Right. There. I love that. I love that one. Perfect. Right. What are you going for for two and three? Um, number two is another a book called um, Influencer, The New Science of Leading Change, which is not... Okay. Um, a title I perhaps would have chosen, but it was recommended to me by a mentor, um, an American lady called Linda Brady, who I met at a conference and subsequently became a bit of a mentor to me. Um, it's by, it's got a long list of authors. Would you like me to list them? Or should I just... No, give, just give me one of them. Okay, it's Grenny, Patterson, Maxfield, Perfect. Macmillan and Switzler. Perfect. Sorry, I should have just given you the first one. Grenny. No, that's fine. Yeah, and it's about influencing people, often big groups of people, to do things that would be good for them to do. So a lot of the examples are kind of health related or similar things like that. But I read it with an eye on sort of management and with an eye on classrooms. And Mm. it sort of splits up different ways of influencing people rather than just thinking of it as all one big mush. So they talk about sort of both um, motivation and ability. So do you want to do it? And then do you believe you can do it? Because if you want to do something, but you believe you can't, you're not going to try very hard. Yes, yes. Um, And then also, um, how does it go? Individual and social and structural kind of issues in influence. So you as an individual, are other people doing this thing too? And are there any structural things that are sort of in the way that are kind of stopping you doing it, but that if we remove those, you could do it more easily? 
and it, it provided a, it's got lots of very il- interesting illustrations and in it provided a sort of framework for thinking about a lot of the things I already do in teaching and in other social situations when I want something to happen yes um, so not thinking there's any magic bullets but thinking that you could perhaps think more broadly about how to influence people to do what you want it, it, I was thinking of it when you were talking about sort of toxic environments in schools you know being more broad about well what is it what culture do you want yes. to have and how can you perhaps affect that culture in a bunch of different ways not just in one way that sounds another good on flipping egg I'm gonna be bankrupt by the end of this <laughs> snapping up these books well what about number three uh, number three is actually by a bunch of the same authors so Patterson is um, um, listed first and it's called Crucial Conversations and also has a long subtitle. But um, the, uh, this book changed my life as much as my first iPod changed my life. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> time ago. Um, um, I found this from the influencer one. But it's, um, I'm not very good at conflict, as a lot of mm. people, and the British people perhaps especially, are not. Um, and it taught me, first of all, it made me laugh because it describes all these ways in which things go wrong as soon as things become important to people and the way they start behaving more badly in conversations and lose control of themselves and start being emotional rather than rational and all the rest of it. But in a very sympathetic way, like everybody's like this. So then the question is, what are you going to do about that? Um, and it has just a very, like any good self-help book, it has a really very well-structured scheme for thinking about if you need to have a difficult conversation, what's going to be in the way and how should Mm. you approach it and what sort of things should you say first and Mm. focusing on helping people to stay feeling safe in that conversation so that you can, you don't have to chicken out of saying difficult things. You can say the difficult things without also damaging the relationship and not feeling like you have to choose between those two things. And it gives a sort of very structured scheme for doing that in a lot of different settings. And I've found that very useful in in life, but also in my career, in situations where, you know, people have different agendas and different personalities. And perhaps you need to say something that's not particularly easy to somebody or a group of people, but you need them to take it seriously. Um, I've just, I've found it's, it's saved me from a lot of angst, really, and yes. given me a structured way to think about how to do that in a way that isn't going to sort of throw a grenade into a situation i don't claim i'm brilliant at it or anything um, by any stretch of the imagination but it certainly made me a lot more confident that i can tackle difficult things without having to be fearful about it wow they're three absolute brilliant ones we've not had any of those on the show before so that's uh, yeah i'll be checking those out that's brilliant well laura this has been an absolute pleasure i've really really enjoyed this um and again it's it's one of those conversations where I've been surprised, but I've also feel like I've got something practical to take away and I've got plenty of things to think about in terms of self-explanation. So I couldn't ask for more. So Laura, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Craig. Thank you. So there you have it. There was my interview with the fantastic Lara Alcock. I absolutely love that interview, you know. I could have spoke to Lara all day long. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And that's not just because we were speaking about some of my favourite things. She was just a really, really interesting guest, a lovely person to speak to. So what are we going to reflect upon in these takeaways? Well, the first is, um, I just wanted to talk about some of the things that, that I do as part of my work to example process that, that I'm pleased to say I'm going to be sticking with now, having spoken to Lara. And um, it's often the case that I, I speak to people, and I think, oh, I'm going to need to change my change my approach to that a little bit. But I'm, I'm pleased to say that, that my work to example process, which starts with Silent Teacher, is followed up by the, uh, the, the, the thinking part, the narration part, 
and then has the read the maths part, those, those second and third parts, the, the thinking slash narration and the read the maths, they're definitely going to stay. So if we talk about the read the maths, um, for those of you who, who aren't aware, what I do here is, um, having gone through the worked example in silence and then having done the, the thinking self-explanation prompts that I'll talk about in a second, I then give students an opportunity to read the solution from start to finish at their own pace, focusing on the bits that they need to focus on themselves. Because up till that point in my worked example process, everything's been done at my pace and with, with my emphasis on things. Now all students are going to need to kind of focus on different things and need to spend different amounts of time in it, so I want them to, to read the solution and, and see it as a whole. Now it's it's interesting and one thing I never considered was that, that students would essentially read that fundamentally different from each other depending on their I guess prior levels of knowledge. And my instinct was always that certain students would focus on different parts of the solution because perhaps some parts were less familiar than other parts but not have a kind of fundamentally different way of, of reading mathematical solutions. And it's just fascinating to, to hear from Lara that that seems to be the case. And I can only speculate that giving students more experience of, of reading mathematical solutions from, from start to finish and crucially more support with it, so then discussing which bits we drew our attention to and so on, is only going to help students become more expert at reading mathematical solutions and focus on the, on the relevant things. So read the maths is staying, I'm pleased to say. And the other thing that's staying is, is that second stage of the process, the, the narration phase. So what happens here is after silent teacher, where the, the worked example is rolled out in silence, uh, during the narration phase, um, I ask self-explanation prompt style questions to, to the students. For example, uh, what did I do from line one to line two? Where did that three come from? And so on, to draw their attention to critical parts of the solution and get them reflecting upon it more. Um, and it's interesting, to, again, to, to hear Laura speak about self-explanations, um, speak about students finding um, them, them quite difficult, even undergraduate uh, students, but that this is a key step to help students become more expert when it comes to reading mathematics and thinking about it. And that is what brings me to what I wanted to, to reflect upon here, and that is that I've been doing a, a fair bit more reading on self-explanations, and this has been prompted by my conversation with Lara, but also my uh, recent conversation with Michael Pershing, where he came back on the show to talk about his worked examples. And also I listened to um, Ollie Lovell, um, his interview with Michael Pershing, where they talked about self-explanations as well. And also Ollie Lovell's interview with Alexander Renkel. And that caused me to revisit uh, Renkel's 1997 paper, which is where I first came across the notion of the self-explanation effect. And I, I write about this, I think in both my books, but certainly, certainly my first book. And in that paper, and it's, it's a cracking read, I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, uh, Renkel talks, talks about the fact that there's two types of self-explanation behavior. There's what's what he calls principled, which is where the student tries to explain what's going on in, in the context of what we're talking about here, uh, that would perhaps be in a, in a worked example or a, the solution to a problem. So a principled self-explanation is where you try to explain what's going on, what's happened from that line to that line, where did that number come from, why did I do that and not that. But there's also another type of self-explanation behaviour, and that's what Renkel calls predictive. 
And that's where students try to explain what is going to happen next. Now, that's the, that the, the predictive is what I try and do during the silent teacher. So the advantage of rolling out a worked example as opposed to having it all kind of pre-presented for the student is that the students don't really know what's coming next. It, it's not all there for them. So if during silent teacher, when I pause, the prompt I give my students is to think, what has he just done? What's he gonna do next? And then I'll do that next thing and then pause again and give them an opportunity to reflect on whether I did what they expected um, or I didn't, and if so, why? So I think that within our worked examples, if we, if we can try and think about how we can help students develop this predictive type of self-explanation behavior, as well as the principle that can be potentially powerful. Because the principle then comes, I think, once students have had a chance to see the, see the solution once. So once silent teachers happened, now comes the thing of them trying to explain what the hell they've just seen. So what's going on? And students find this difficult, as, as Laura alluded to, and a lot of the research suggests that this is the case as well. So this is where the self-explanation prompts can be super, super powerful. So again, what's happened from that line to that line? Where did that number come from? Why did I not do this? And so on. That's all the principled self-explanation prompts to try and get students to reflect on what's going on. Now, Renkel suggests that both of these types of self-explanation behavior, predictive and principled, can be really, really beneficial and effective in terms of, of learning. But two thirds of students do not engage in either behavior spontaneously. And it tends to be the higher achieving students who are spontaneous self-explainers. So if we know that this type of behavior, or we suspect this type of behavior is beneficial to learning, but two -thirds, the majority of students aren't doing it, then it's about how we can support our students doing it. And as I say, that's where I use silent teacher and the narration uh, stage of worked examples. But again, there'll be lots of different ways of, 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 of doing this. So two things, well, one thing I just wanted you to perhaps to reflect upon here is, is when you're doing your worked examples or when students are problem solving and so on, do you, do you provide opportunities for students to develop this type of self-explanation behavior, principled and, and predictive? And the second thing is that it seems to be the case that not all self-explanation prompts are created equally. And this is what I think I've, I've struggled to get my head around for a while, but I, th I think I'm just about there now. And that is that the key to a good self-explanation prompt, and if we just think about the principled self-explanation prompts here, the ones where students are trying to explain what's going on, the key to a good one seems to be to connect the specific example, the specific case that students are, are witnessing here or engaged in, so the specific worked example or problem that they're solving, to the general principle. So if all the self-explanation prompts are tied to that specific example, students don't have that opportunity to generalize. And this is where it becomes quite tricky because when I reflect on a lot of my self-explanation prompts, they are tied to the specific example. So things like, where did that three come from? Well, if there isn't a three in the other examples that students try to, try to solve or the problems that they try to solve, Will they can they generalize from that? So it's about thinking how we can make the prompts that we give our students kind of as general as possible. And I think things like what's happened from this line to this line, and perhaps like let's say students have factorized from that line to that line or collected like terms or changed the base of the indices or something like that. That's when we start to get into a bit more kind of generality. That's when we start to get away from the specific case and start to help students develop principles that they can then apply to different cases.
Now, the thing is, of course, that when we have kind of specific self-explanation prompts that are tied to the example, that they're a lot easier for students to grasp. So I, what I've been experimenting with recently, and I think this, this has been interesting during kind of remote learning, and also I've been doing a fair few videos for, for ED and diagnostic questions where we use self-explanation prompts, is perhaps kind of opening up with a few specific ones that are tied to the example to get students into the way of self-explaining, that way of thinking. So where did that three come from? Um, what, why didn't I have an X here? Where did the P come from? And so on. Tied to specific examples. The specific example, I think that gets students into the way of thinking. But then as we move through the problem, as we move through the example, having some more general ones which are removed from that specific example so students can reflect on the whole, I think then starts to bridge the gap between specific to to. to to being able to generalize. So just a few things to think about, and I've noticed um, from just on Twitter and seeing what's being shared and so on, quite a few teachers seem to be getting into this, this idea of um, self-explanation prompts with examples. So as I say, it's worth reading the Renkel paper. It's worth um, kind of just thinking about this a little bit more, more deeply, having heard this con in a conversation with Lara and some of the work that Ollie Lovell, Michael Pershing and so on have been doing around the Renkel work. It's, it's a fascinating area, I think, of, of, of research. And again, I, you just can't get away from that fact that some students seem to just be natural at doing this, natural at tying things together, natural at kind of questioning what's happened and why has it happened. But some students aren't, and it seems to be the majority of students who, who aren't. And if we can find ways to help support all students, or as many as possible, do engage in this, this pr profitable, productive self-explanation behaviour, I think it can only be a good thing. Anyway, I'll shut up now. So all that remains for me to do is thank Laura for being a fantastic guest, uh, thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show, and to thank you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in in your thousands. I hope you're enjoying this Research and Action series. Loads more to come, loads more absolute crackers as well. So I'll leave it there. You take care, and bye for now.